Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. We're here on the sidelines of the Singapore FinTech Festival with the Breaking Banks Asia team. Karis, Simon and me, your host Rachel Williamson and our Breaking Banks Europe colleague Matteo. How are you doing? Hey guys, it's great to be with you. Much easier in person than over the phone and super happy to do this uh, Breaking Banks family reunion. Isn't it great? So, how many times have you been to this festival before? So, like three, four times, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, I've been here for the first two. Uh, so we helped a little bit, uh, uh, so Pendu at the beginning, uh, you know, getting some people around. Uh, they, of course, don't need any help today because that's the, by far the biggest show on earth. So we'd love to know your most interesting thing that you saw this week, most surprising and most amusing. So interesting, I think that uh, the fact that this is the, the last one of the MD Ravi era is interesting because I'm curious about what his successor, you know, that has been announced uh, is going to do with the festival, you know, is a, is a huge baby now. So the, the interesting part of it is how complicated or smooth the transition is going to be. The amusing part is the fact that uh, I got the venue of the festival wrong. How? So, so because the, the, I was convinced that the festival was in town in the center at the Santec uh, Expo Center, which is where I remember seven years ago with the sparkle of Alzheimer that the... the um, <laughs> where they used to be able to fit, exa- the, fit the people, which exa- they probably exa- couldn't exa- today. Exactly. So the, so, and I thought that uh, that was where the event was. So I, I picked the hotel close by and I realized that day one that I had to do like a half an hour cab to get here. So that's what's quite amusing. What about you guys? Yeah, look, I think on the interesting front, Yang Peng from Ant Financial, great to hear from him. I mean, all of the Ant people have been really interesting, but he was talking about, you know, 68 countries on open banking, the convergence of private compute technology, which I hadn't really heard a lot about in, in kind of our general region, the people we talk to, and talking about the private compute and um, open banking converging because, of course, in Asia, open banking is not that advanced yet, right? It's the early days of it. So I found that really interesting and looking forward to kind of delving a bit more into that in future shows. I was really surprised, and this is, you know, the parochial Australian in me, but really surprised that there aren't any, you know, is there any real presence of Australian regulators here? So you have the central bankers from some of the banks around the world. Even um, Georgia? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had Georgia here. Even Italy, guys, Italy. Italy, Italian Central Banker is here. Um, You know, and we, I believe we had one representative from the Reserve Bank of Australia here on Tuesday. Haven't seen them since. Haven't seen anyone from APRA or ASIC, our big regulators. They're not here. So, and and the reason I think that that matters and is is, um, surprising to me is that there are a lot of regional block discussions happening around central bank digital currencies, around, you know, 
know, tokenization and cross-border payments. And if they're not here, they're not in the room having these discussions. Um, so hopefully it's just for whatever reason they couldn't make it. Maybe they're all at APEC. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I'd like to see uh, them a bit more present next time round because I'd like to think that Australia can play a bigger role in this kind of Asian zone, if you like, rather than being kind of very much Australasian. Well, I, if I if I put my like Elevandi partner hat, uh, we organize the, the the Africa and Europe forums. So maybe we bring a forum to Australia. You know that uh, you know there is a it's it's a big enough place to do something more than a satellite uh, event. Mm. So let's see if someone you know yeah, hears us and. Uh, and gives us the opportunity. Yeah, we'd love to see them, and there's a lot to talk about. And also, Australia is a great place to visit. So yeah, we know we love Amen. visiting Singapore, but the Singaporeans like visiting Australia too, and along with the rest of the world, if they can put up with the long haul flight. Beach volley in Bondi Beach every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The funny thing was for me on Rachel's panel yesterday, she was moderating a panel of three kind of quite diverse people, and one of them was from Meta. And I did have to laugh to myself when he turned, tried to turn the tables on us as journalists and say, well, Rachel, you're a journalist. <laughs> you know, you're part of the problem. It's like, hang on, but you're meta. <laughs> it, was a, it was a boss move. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, the, the topic was actually about doing AI for good and if they can fix if they can fix what's happening in social media with AI, well, kudos to them, because that's probably one of the best use cases I can think of, aside from That was fintech. what, the amusing or the interesting part? A bit of both. <laughs> <A> bit of <laughs> Simon. For me, surprising was just how sophisticated and nuanced the conversations were here. The president, uh, in particular, just very cogent, very well-informed, and, and there was a sophistication in their thinking. and. And that's something I hadn't seen before in political leaders or in senior executives. Yeah, we interviewed the uh, CEO of Standard Chartered, and again, he, he just reflected a degree of mastery of the language and the issues and what was important and what's actually more a noise. And yeah, particularly in tech and fintech. So, you know, you don't expect these kind of senior level, you know, statesmen and women and CEOs of companies they're often at a very high level. They understand the high level issues. They don't often understand the detail. And yeah, they, they were very well briefed, I guess. So they, they got across the details. But it felt like they weren't just sort of ambulance chasing the hype. They actually did understand these issues. And, yeah, and, and questions around CBDC and stable coins, you know, to me, it reflected that you know, maybe we've gone up, up and over that sort of Gartner hype cycle and we're now in that sort of plateau of actually people doing real things with this. And again, now sort of reflect on Karis's observation, the absence of Australian media here and the absence of Australian regulators, and there were obviously representatives from the Australian banks here, but I think they're missing an opportunity to be part of that conversation. They're missing an opportunity also to see the sophistication of the conversation here, because I think some of the things that are getting discussed back in Australia are actually part of the noise. They're not actually, you know, it's that sort of foam within the surf. It's not actually looking at what's the material thing. Um, and I think this coming out here is a great way to recalibrate what's important and what's really not. So, my three things. It's been a long time since I've attended a conference quite this large. The last time was many years ago in Dubai when I worked in the Middle East. I love that Singapore FinTech Festival has the power to shut off an entire street of bars. That and was pretty awesome. Make it open bar, um, which possibly tells you where my priority li- priorities lie. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, interesting. I 
I love the focus on climate and fintech. This is a personal hobby horse of mine. My other portfolio of jobs includes climate and science journalism. And I think it's fair to say that a lot of exhibitors here are probably facilitating quite a significant amount of greenwashing. Yeah. Yeah. But... It was interesting. One of the women on the AY stand said to me, we look around our stand and we reckon 70% of the stands we can see here are greenwashing. Yeah, but at the same time, people are engaged. And I think that's... And there's money. And there's money. One thing that I thought was... that was a bit surprising was a lack of a presence of open banking because I actually think that's where um, some really interesting climate, uh, particularly from consumer level action, could start happening. You can use open banking to start really truly tracking your data and tracking your spending and tracking your activities and then suddenly you have a real-time carbon footprint. So I'm excited to see where that goes. I'll be interested to see if that's something that starts to come up in the next year or two. Mm. I, I want to say something about the talent stage uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, it is one of the you know biggest uh, side uh, stages that I've seen. I mean people would make a conference out of it. There were like 300 people, uh, mostly full. Uh, yesterday I was on a I was on a panel there and there were only I want to say 100 students, but the other 200 people they were like people from the industry, right? And we talked about upskilling and reskilling and uh, you know the 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 need for talent and the requalification and you know the usual bullshit bingo is AI replacing the talent and stuff like that, but. That's like the, it could also be the amusing, uh, the, the amusing part of the, of the story. Um, and I am particularly uh, affectionate to the, to the, to the topic. Uh, my dream is actually to launch this, this upskilling school in, uh, in Africa and hopefully uh, like a, a big event dedicated just to this. And I'm happy that because we, we had also the, the talent stage in uh, Kigali in, uh, in Rwanda, I'm happy that this is becoming a constant, you know, mm-hmm. that the, this topic was uh, completely undermined uh, before COVID. Mm-hmm. Everyone discovered that uh, you know the the way of working is now different, and my grandma can now do how do you say the, the uh, phone payments, mm, mobile payments, payments yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, the the need for uh, getting to another party at the level of how do you educate your people, how do you make. Uh, non-developers, developers, etc., etc., mm. becomes a big, yeah. big thing. So yeah, there was that too. company um, in the AI use cases session they had on the, the festival stage yesterday that is training people in India to do the AI large language model recordings in multiple Indian languages. It really impressed me when he told the story of this young girl who given a smartphone and had no education at all, started recording for the, these LLMs that this company work provides in her in her native language, uh, earned more money in a week than her family, her entire family, have earned in a year, they said. Oh, wow. And so okay, suddenly it's, you know, wow, a real impact. Opening up actual jobs, you know, yes, it's true, AI will destroy jobs. And we were actually quite surprised, I think, at the level of optimism, and it is a technology conference, so it's full of techno-optimists, if you like, but everyone here is talking about, you know, co-pilot and uplift and new jobs in AI. As journalists, we're pretty cynical. We genuinely believe AI will wipe out jobs. I think Brett King's obviously in that camp as well. Uh, But 
this was a real example of this is a job that didn't exist, you know, that's actually now being filled by somebody who would never have had access to that kind of job in the past. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Matteo. Great to meet you finally. Pleasure. Pleasure. And Pleasure. So good. Uh, well, thanks, Henry Zhang, for joining us on the sidelines of the Singapore FinTech Festival. What has been the most interesting thing you've seen here? What's been the most interesting meetings that you've had at the summit? I'm very excited to multiple things here. Just highlight a couple. I attended also last year. One thing is we do see in each SFF Singapore FinTech Festival, including this one, we see the new innovations coming up. A lot of uh, players, innovators, including us, very eager to uh, introduce the new solutions into the market. Second, I would say, you see here is uh, many and more uh, so-called established firms, financial institutions, they come in here. Um, not only talking about what they're doing now, they're also talking about what they're going to do the next. So that's very, very positive. Uh, thirdly, I will see the regulators here. You can see a lot of booths belong to the regulators, not only Singapore MS. MS has multiple stages. There are some regulators and other market players from many other jurisdictions all over the world, literally all over the world. I'm very, very excited to see that one. The regulators' regulations also embracing the innovations, and the innovations that seek to work with regulators' innovations, because we're talking about finance financial industry. So one side, we appreciate the regulations to protect the interests of investors, market participants. Also, we encourage the regulators also to embrace innovations to apply, to implement so-called appropriate regulation actions to cope with the innovations. So in these three parts, I see very, very positive. Yeah, I mean, I think from our perspective, MAS seems like a if not regional, almost a world leader in some of this regulation and in, I guess, the sandboxing and the enabling of some of this innovation to happen. Um, are you seeing other, you know, regulators in that ballpark? I mean, they, as you say, there's a lot of them here, but they may not be as moving as, as quickly as some of their kind of um, neighbouring countries. Are you seeing that, that evolve with time? MS does take a leading role and a very active role in terms of uh, embracing uh, innovations. More than embracing, they also initiate a lot of innovations, including various projects for different things. And also the one way actively participate is the regulatory sandbox, which is the way not just saying is to allow the, the experiment before there's a full suite of regulation coming to stage, which takes time. Uh, so Sandbox is one thing, and uh, DGFT is the first and uh, the only one so far, the DeFi solutions be enrolled into the Sandbox. So allowed us to launch some product on a pilot basis, but these are the real transactions. So we really can see from one to 10. So that's the good practices. Uh, MS has been doing and will continue to do. And we also we do see other regulators, they, they do share experiences, observations, I, I believe so. And we see others also coming up, uh, not only just a follow, but they also uh, uh, relate to the, uh, the, in the context of specific jurisdiction, they come in with different focuses, different uh, practices. 
this is very good. And in the end, the financial industry is a global industry. This technology is just to encourage and facilitate the globalization. If you would agree with me, the technology, the internet, and now internet version three, called Web3, just make the cross-border and the global financial market more transparent and efficient and also uh, secure. So in this regard, we also do expect the regulators talk to each other, and uh, because as we are dealing with global. I'm interested in you saw if you saw the um, stablecoins versus tokenized assets head-to-head debate yesterday. Yeah, tokenized deposits and stablecoins. There's a very very important. I would say two things. One is in a, for tokenized assets, we do need tokenized money. To buy tokenized assets, so I view the deposits or tokenized money, stable coins, is one of the key enabler for tokenized assets. Second is so-called the stable coins or tokenized deposits. By nature, it is and a part of the tokenized assets, so it's very very important, and they are also uh, it's a key enabler for the tokenized other tokenized assets. So you're saying essentially that there is no debate that they they go hand in hand. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's an exclusive one thing or another, either one or another. No, they are complement to each other. Um, both are very important. There may be discussions uh, because each one has its maybe have its distinctive. Uh, Features and the positionings, but I don't think they are competing. It's complement to each other. There's room for room for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's true. In terms of your um, your path, so you left city, the banking sector, to go into this world. Why? What what drove you to to move from banking into what you're doing now, which you really is really did. startup, right? Yeah, you really did a study on my background. Yes, I did spend uh, a long time in the established firms, uh, City, Standard Chartered, East West Bank. Um, I would say for the banks, right, or the traditional well-established financial institutions, they never stop using uh, new technologies. Actually, the banking industry, financial industry, is always a pioneer in adopting new technologies, communication technologies, internet, now blockchain, and maybe AI and others. So technology is never strange to financial industry. And given my background, when I serve the uh, these firms, we always also strive to evaluate and using new technologies. One thing. Uh, second is more personal. Is and uh, 25 years ago, uh, when I was in City, uh, much younger than now, uh, I was the e-commerce head for City for a while. That time was internet banking. That was another wave of so-called very uh, generational technology, which is internet-based. I was lucky, uh, uh, deeply involved in on that side. So I developed one of the first RMB payment online banking system in China as the product manager. So do have the hands-on experience of not only witness, but also to implement new technology to the financial industry. The new technology 25 years ago, it is internet, right? So a lot of similarities compared to, we talk about Web3, which is blockchain-based currently. Um, at the beginning, the people probably understand not too much and also didn't see the full potential of the technology application into the industry. Not coming again, uh, compared to blockchain, I would call this another generational technology innovation, which means big technology. So when these things come, 
leverage on the previous experience, I will see uh, the future, the potential of this kind of uh, generational technology will be huge. So I'm very eager to be more dedicated to uh, implement it, to practice it. That's why uh, I, taken a, I took a course on the uh, so-called established platform to do it in another way, which is in a startup as a new initiative. We're here on the sidelines of Singapore Fintech Festival with Lito Villanueva, founding chairman of the Fintech Alliance of the Philippines, and the executive vice president and chief innovations and inclusions officer for RCBC. Thank you for joining me, Lito. My pleasure, and again, welcome to the Singapore FinTech Festival. And we are, we have the first and the largest uh, Philippine country pavilion, and we call it Bagong Pilipinas, or in English, it's New Philippines Country Pavilion. And this is a public-private partnership where the industry uh, has been championing the the digital thrust of the Philippine president, uh, President Marcos, in pushing and promoting massive digitalization uh, across the country uh, towards an inclusive, sustainable. Uh, digital economy. And note that uh, uh, as per S&P Global Market Intelligence, the Philippine economy is expected to, be, uh, to become a one uh, trillion US dollar economy by 2033. And uh, we are very much confident about it, about, about that uh, projection, given the thriving fintech landscape in the Philippines. We have seen exponential growth in terms of digital payments volume. And uh, in, in fact, we have uh, the the regulator-mandated or regulator-initiated digital payments transformation roadmap. It has twin goals. One is to shift at least 50% of retail financial transactions into digital and onboard 70% of adult Filipinos to have uh, transactional bank accounts. By that end is of, a big goal. Yes, by the end of this year. That is a very ambitious goal. Yes, and the good news is that we will be able to surpass those goals this year. Yes, and that is the concerted effort across uh, stakeholders. I mean, the players in the industry, the regulators, of course, the consumers, media, and all the other players in the industry that really made this a reality. So, as I've said, we have a thriving uh, fintech landscape in the country. We have the... If, the Philippines is one of the luckiest, if not the luckiest, developing market where you have a very progressive and dynamic regulators. Uh, one is the Banco Central and Filipinas, and the other one is Securities and Exchange Commission. We have seen quite a number of um, uh, pioneering, enabling regulations uh, to further promote innovations uh, for inclusion. And this is something that we are very thankful about because this really fortifies our resolve in terms of having to really further promote inclusive digital finance in the Philippines. Who are the top fintechs <clears throat> in the country right now? So we only have uh, two unicorns in the Philippines, uh, and we hope to have more in the very near future. So we have Gcash, uh, a, double, yeah. a double unicorn, and Maya, another unicorn. And we have over 256 fintech players in the Philippines. And we have actually surpassed the five-year plan set forth, at the, uh, set forth in the Philippine Development Plan five years in advance. So we were tasked by the government to further promote the fintech industry uh, for us to 
invite more fintech players to operate in the Philippines. And in fact, as I've said, we were able to accomplish that goal five years in advance. So, and these are some of the metrics uh, to show how progressive the industry is right now. And we are expecting more, um, you know, more players to come into the Philippines uh, because you know, Philippines is a very young has a very young population, a median age of 24 years old. You know, it's a and very it's, fragmented. Uh, too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and very, and it's a consumption-based economy. And one of the things that we would want, also would want to highlight, is that uh, there are still quite a number of things to to do in terms of, say, providing greater uh, access to credit for MSMEs, and being able to ensure that Filipinos would make use of their digital accounts, right? So, because having to open an account is one thing, but having to use them is another thing, right? So, are you saying that you might? reach that goal by the end of the year, but people, it's going to be another step to actually get people to use those accounts that they've opened. Well, it's really more on how you will be able to sustain them, right? As I said, shifting the uh, the manual way of transacting to digital and having to onboard 70% of the Filipino adults. Mm-hmm. That's why I think there must be a combination of, uh, you know, uh, customer onboarding, usage and retention, right? Even post-pandemic, we have seen the sustained growth of uh, digital adoption because we thought before that once we go back to the pre-pandemic environment, uh, they will shift back again to the analog way of doing financial transactions. But good good thing is that it's not. So we have seen the sustained, sustained growth and we are very positive about the things to come in the, in the future. And we hope to mount another uh, Philippine Pavilion next year for the SMF. And for example, for RCBC, I mean, um, at least for RCBC being the you know one, uh, the fastest growing bank in the Philippines, uh, digital has been the key for us to be able to uh, become the fifth largest from in by end of 2022 from being eighth in 2018. Uh, so that's, that's a big leap, right? So that is, that is huge. A that, leap for I mean, that is such a it's such a good case study for just Pre- what technology can do for a bank. Precisely. So imagine from being eighth in 2018 to fifth in 2022, at the height of the pandemic. Uh, can you explain to me what that tech transformation involved? You know, RCBC is a 63-year-old bank. The whole idea is on how to push digital transformation inside the bank, right? And again, uh, digital transformation is not about technology per se. It's about culture, it's about mindset, it's about the will to move forward and to embrace change. And it's also about collaboration. It's a great case study for RCBC because when we embrace digital, when we embrace change, when we embrace competition, I would always define it in three C's, co-opetition, collaboration, and co-creation. And I think those are the three ingredients why uh, RCBC is now the fifth largest uh, private universal bank in terms of assets in the Philippines. Uh, and that leapfrogging uh, is, a, is a manifestation on, on how we were able to optimize or leverage on digital technologies. What are some of the examples of the technological changes and transformations that have taken place under your watch at RCBC? 
You know, uh, we are the only bank in the in the Philippines uh, that cre- even created a digital committee. It's even uh, headed by the chairman of the board. Because before, in a traditional bank, right? So it would, uh, when I came into RCBC, it, one single initiative or one single idea uh, to even be considered has to go through at least five board committees. I mean, you know, technology committee, pre-tech, there's a pre-tech com, uh, there is a budget committee, there's executive committee, there's uh, IT committee, of course, legal, etc., etc., so those things. So in this case, uh, this is the first time that we were able to create a digital committee where it is now an, an express lane of anything and everything about digital. And the good thing is that it's being chaired by the chairperson of the board uh, and co-chaired by the president and CEO of the, of the bank. Right, and the other key group heads uh, that are also into payments, etc., etc. Right, or data analytics with IT, etc. So I mean, that's why we can actually decide on things. I could present to them, and I could get the approval in a mat in, within an hour, right? And gone are the days that I have, you know, that you have to present different dates, different, you know, and it will just for the presentation alone will take you one month, two months, etc. And for you to even develop it, or if once you get the approval, it will take months for you to even market that or launch it in the market. So it's something that really changed. And in fact, if you are to look at my title as well, Chief Innovation and Inclusion Officer, the in- the inclusion piece is has been included in in, in my title because. We are innovating for inclusion, uh, and that is the first uh, order of the day on how we can make financial services more inclusive, right? And of course, you cannot do inclusive digital finance without you having to leverage on on platforms, on technologies, or expand your branch network because that's too expensive, and people are not really go- going into those branches. If you are talking about Filipinos who are in the far-flung areas, right? Because remember, Philippines is a an, uh, archipelago. We have 7,100 islands, and and data infrastructure is still a, a challenge, right? So that's why we have this common understanding of the pain points on how we can provide an utmost, uh, you know, customer delight with less friction to customers who would want to do banking. They're not actually doing it with a bank, but doing banking with a financial services provider that has the trust of being a bank. You know, because the commodity that we have, that what we're offering is actually trust, right? Because uh, there are also some consumers that would still would want to deal with banks because of the reputation, the integrity, and trust. So that's why um, we keep that so sacred to us. Uh, That's why while we are leveraging on technology, while we are uh, uh, optimizing the the use of digital, trust would always be there. That's why I would have an acronym for trust. Technology that is responsive, universal, secure, and transparent. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.